Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Joining me today is Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. It's a powerful and moving account of how one woman came to terms with her sexuality. And we'll dig into the content with the author in just a minute. But right now, here's the inside scoop on Jan. Jan Phillips' quest has taken her into and out of a religious convent, across the country on a Honda motorcycle, and around the world on a one-woman peace pilgrimage. She is the founder and executive director of the Living Kindness Foundation, which created a learning center in Nigeria and supports anti-racist creative projects by black women in the U.S. Jan is the author of 11 award-winning books and a thought leader who bridges spiritual intelligence, evolutionary creativity, and social transformation. She has taught in over 25 countries and has published work in the New York Times, Ms., Newsday, People, Parade Magazine, Christian Science Monitor, Spirituality and Health, Science of Mind, National Catholic Reporter, and Sun Magazine. Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic is her first memoir. To learn more about Jan and her work, visit her website at janphillips.com. Well, hi, Jan. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Well, I'm very happy to be at Inside Scoop Live. Great, great. We're excited to have you. Why don't you kick it off by telling us a little bit about your book, Still on Fire? Okay, well, the book is my 11th book, but it's my first memoir. And I decided to write it because it really deals with the intersection of two kind of marginalized places. One is LGBT, which is a big deal now because teen suicides for LGBTQ community are up. Mm. And there's still in other countries around the world caning us, stoning us, throwing us off buildings. And so even though people might think easy breezy for queers today because they can marry each other, the opposite is still true. Mm -hmm. So I'm in that community. It's my tribe. And so I thought, well, I'll tell my story. And the other side of it is the spirituality side, because so many LGBT people have quit the churches they were ever introduced to because the churches have been perpetuating a certain kind of homophobia. Mm -hmm. And so we're all basically kicked out. As a Catholic, I was thrown out of the convent. I was denied confessional absolution, thereby being denied the sacraments. Being excommunicated for a trait that you're born with, it has nothing to do with the living of your life. It just seems ridiculous. So This memoir is the story of, how did the publisher say it? Religious wounding and spiritual healing. Mm. And I thought that was a nice little way of saying it because it brings to mind the difference between religion and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole hope of this book. It's like so many people feel I can't be spiritual if I left my church, if I don't go to church anymore, even though my church hates me and dishonors and disinherits me. So I 
haven't had anything to do with religion in a very long time, but I have a profoundly deep spiritual life. And I facilitate retreats for spiritual intelligence and evolutionary creativity. So out of the abundance of my own pain and transformation and and spiritual evolution, I feel like I'm a good storyteller because I have no resentments. I have nothing that's unforgiven. So I've reached the point where I can see how it happens. I almost can understand why it happens, but I do know the secret to not having it affect you so deeply. If you have been enculturated by this homophobic culture to not have reverence and respect for LGBT community. So I'm a good storyteller. It's a great book because it's one story after another and each chapter has a really great little gold nugget hidden in there. Oh, okay. So basically it's by, you know, of course it's a memoir. So it's biographical about this kid who is suicidal when she's 12. Because when you reach puberty and you start you know, falling for people, Mm -hmm. having romantic feelings. I was horrified that my romantic feelings were for girls. I thought I better kill myself right now because nobody can stand queers. Mm. So at what point did everything kind of turn around? So I'm just pondering how am I going to kill myself? I'm in sixth grade and my nun, Sister Helen Charles, the teacher, realizes that I'm going down a terrible dark bunny hole. So she starts this campaign called positive reinforcement that kicks in after a few weeks, which just means she applauds and affirms me for every little thing that I do well, Hmm. which is, oh, Dan Phillips, you're the greatest athlete. I watch you in the playground. Oh, you're so artistic. Help me with the bulletin boards. And oh, class, isn't she the best speller? Oh, come right on the board. You're right on the board so well. Everything you can imagine she's applauding me for. And suddenly I got it. One day I woke up and I wasn't feeling like this depressed little kid walking around with her head down trying to kill herself. Oh, wow. I believed in the words of Sister Helen Charles that I was bright and gifted and my life was blessed and I should be so happy. And it just happened like the day when the caterpillar becomes the butterfly. Mm. It happened magically. And that was the day I decided to be a nun because I realized, oh, my God, this nun turned me into a butterfly from an old (laughs) caterpillar. I want to do that for other kids that are in trouble. So that was the whole reasoning behind why did I go into the convent? And because I was a bad girl, I was not, you know, all through high school, I do everything you can do, you know, to to be bad. Right. right? (laughs) Right. Smoked a lot messed around with boys, you know, because you had to mess around with boys, you couldn't be messing around with girls. And I knew I was going to be going in the convent. So I had to get all that bad into my system or out of my system, however you might say it, because I was going to have a life of poverty, chastity and obedience. So tell us about life in the convent. So when I go into the convent, there's 30 of us that enter at the same time in 1967. And I kind of became the leader of the tribe, but I was still a bad girl there because I, you know, we're in training to take a vow of obedience. And I just don't want to traffic in that arena at all. (laughs) 
It's just like one of the worst things I could ever think of obeying people. I didn't trust anybody because there was nobody in my life as a young kid who I could trust to protect me. Mm -hmm. Right. Because everybody just thinks who I am is a terrible thing. So hide it, never show it. Right. This and that. Do you feel like people knew that you were gay or did you tell your family? How did that all play out? I told my family in the 70s after I came out to myself. And Mm. when you go into the convent, they give you a barrage of tests to weed out homosexuals, you know, and they'll ask ridiculous questions like, Mm. and it'd be like 200 questions. One of them will be, are you attracted to masculine women? And then 72 questions later, there'll be one that says, are you attracted to feminine women? Mm. You know, I'm smart enough to know what they're trying to weed out here. So I just, you know, I just say no to everything that has anything to do with sex. So yeah. they won't figure it out. But when I get in there and start falling in love, you know, they figured it out. Oh. And that's how come I got dismissed two years later. Wow. I get sent home one night. And right, they didn't tell me why. They just said, give us your habit, change back into your clothes. You entered in, give us your veil. Your parents will be here in half an hour. So it was a trauma. Yeah. Because I, I really loved that life. I wouldn't have loved it if I had been obedient. But since I was disobedient and did anything I wanted, I loved the life. It was great. Yeah. <laughs> it gave me the formula for bliss, which is create your day with equal parts of prayer and solitude and community and service. Wow. That was a, like the boot camp law. It's like... When you go to the Marines, they don't let you decide what you're going to do with your day. They say, here's what you're going to do with your day. Right. And that's how it was in the Bishop training. Here's what your days look like. And because they divvied them up into, okay, so much work, physical labor, so much service, go take care of the older sisters, work in the kitchen, go work in the laundry. There's a lot of that. And then there's also all three hours by yourself in prayer, meditation. Oh, don't talk. Right. So there was a lot of solitude, a lot of contemplation time. And then I realized why I was so happy in there, because that's the perfect formula for me to be happy. The structure. Yeah. Yeah. So I create my days in the same way right now. Okay. I've already had two hours of prayer this morning. Oh, wow. Now, you said you learned to distinguish the difference between faith and religion in the convent, uh, which was a little surprising to me. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It was in the first theology class. When you first go into the convent, you're called a postulant. Mm-hmm. And in the postulate, which is your number one, you have your first theology class. And the guy, Father Grobis, was intent on us knowing the difference between religion and faith. And we have one semester to create a living spirituality for ourselves, which Mm. none of the 30 of us knew what he was talking about because we had collapsed faith and Mm -hmm. spirituality and memorize, you know, the Catholic church just really installs it like a software program. Right. So it's I'm a cellular Catholic, right? So what, What happens is you memorize the Baltimore Catechism. The hierarchy of the Catholic Church doesn't really trust people 
to engage with the Bible independently. Right. I grew up Catholic, and I don't even think I picked up a Bible until I was in my mid-30s. Yeah, right, because we all have one. Yeah. Because, you know, you got the big Bible on the coffee table, but nobody is ever encouraged to look at it because we are infantilized by the church to think you need a priest to help you understand what it's trying to say. Right. And so we never know much about the Bible, except for what we get in the epistle and the gospel. It's every Sunday mass. But this priest said to us, religion is what you inherited. It's a bunch of doctrines and dogma. It's literal. Put it on the top shelf and don't go anywhere near it for this whole semester. Hmm. And I raised a fuss. You know, we all were like, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> and then he said, religion is what you inherit faith or your spirituality you know collapse those two together faith and spirituality that's what you create from your interior spirituality it's what you claim for yourself as the vital life force that'll sustain your life and it's based on your ultimate commitments and you decide what you're committed to we're 18 years old Mm -hmm. and we had all been in catholic school for years and we didn't understand this freedom. He's trying to unlock our change. And we're all going like, leave my chains where they are. Because we weren't really adult enough that we'd been conditioned and programmed and all these things. So he basically helped us get rid of, not that we would never return to it, but to all that doctrine, all the Apostles' Creed, all the stuff about the resurrection, the mysteries, the you know, mm-hmm. the virgin birth, put it away because you have to figure out as a person, as a spiritual woman, what matters to you spiritually. That's what you got to figure out. Yeah. And it was hard work. And I figured out that Jesus had always been my good buddy. And I always thought of him more as a brother than anything else. So I took his way is my way. And I said, okay, well, what I'm committed to is being a light in the world. I'm committed to social justice and I'm committed to working with the poor and the marginalized Mm -hmm. and and to be a peacemaker. And Jesus, if you ask me, made it real simple for us. There's no rules and regulations except be kind, be full of mercy and don't judge. Right. Right. Feed the poor. So I said that this is who I am. As a spiritual woman, this is my faith, my spirituality. I'm light in the world. I'm committed to the poor. And I'm a servant of peace and unity. So that was very good that that got established for me and by me at an early age. Because in two years, I'm kicked out of the convent, kicked out of my church. That would have been terrible if I didn't Mm -hmm. know the distinction. That is great that you were exposed to that at such a young age because... I don't even think I realized I could talk directly to God, you know, not through a priest until my 40s, maybe. I don't know. I know. It takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about religion. Do you feel like organized religion is the biggest contributor to marginalization and homophobia? Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're killing people a lot in Africa. They never would have killed us in Africa if the missionaries hadn't gone over there. Mm. Killing us a lot in the Middle East, stoning us, caning, mm-hmm. throwing us off buildings because of religion in the Middle East. So it's not just Christian. 
but Christianity is so far removed from what Jesus was really up to mm -hmm. that they've come up with this terrible notion of, you know, something's wrong with homosexuals. And so, yeah, I think Christian missionaries are out there perpetuating very dangerous myths. Mm. And, you know, in our own country, it's a little bit more subtle now because in some cases it? <laughs> it's against the law. Yeah. But I've been coming out everywhere since the early 70s. Mm -hmm. Just because so in the early 70s, women were still losing their children in custody cases. So I felt like there's a lot of women who can't come out without risking the loss of their children. So I have to speak double time. Oh, wow. Yeah. I have to come out everywhere mm -hmm. all the time. Do you feel like people's attitudes can be changed? Because I, I want to believe they can, but I'm having a hard time, you know, with everything we're seeing today. It just indicates that we're not able to change as a society as a whole. And that's kind of scary. Well, I think a lot of changes happened since people have been coming out and so terribly homophobic people recognize they have a, a nephew or a niece or a cousin or a daughter or son and that you want to love that mm -hmm. kid or that relative and so you have to really do some deep work to figure out how you're not going to ostracize someone for your life. And I think many families in this country have been put through that test of, oh, oh I got three kids and one of them is gay. What am I going to do? And yes, it's true that there's a whole lot of homeless teens who have been cast out of their homes. There's a ton of them here yeah. in San Diego. Mostly it happens to boys by unaccepting fathers. But I think that what the human rights campaign has done nationally as an institution for and about LGBTQ people has let that in fact led to Supreme Court decision, let us get married. And that has led to more acceptance mm. in the community. And sure, there's still a lot of homophobia among people well, let's just say left and right, the conservative people in this country who refuse to think critically on their own, who don't know how to think critically and get their marching orders from Fox News or whatever, right. they're still, you know, happily, blissfully lost <laughs> in a wrong time, in a wrong era, in a wrong ethic, but not much you can do about it. I mean, I feel like uh, living in Texas, especially, oh my gosh, we're just going backwards. First, abortion is illegal. And and now what just passed was um, trans rights. It's against the law to, to I, I can't even articulate it because I don't understand it. Yeah, uh, because they're saying something about parents of trans kids are bad. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. What's happening in Florida? I just want to drive around Florida shouting the word gay out of my car. Right, right. I can't, don't say gay. Now, how ridiculous is that? I know. So the pendulum is swinging weirdly yeah. In, yeah. in the direction of oppression as wildly as it's swinging in the direction of like freedom. Yeah. So your book, Still on Fire, I, I love the subtitle anyway. What's a queer what, mystic? Yeah, yeah, what's a queer mystic? So 
I wanted to put queer in the on the book cover because if you don't, then my tribe won't know it's for them. Mm. Right. And because my tribe is generally churchless, I had to like code it in such a way that they would be able to like I'm in a rainbow scarf. Yeah, I saw that. I love that portrait. I took in Italy walking down an alley in Orvieto with a long black robe and a rainbow scarf draped around my neck. And so there's anonymity to the photo, but that rainbow scarf gives you a clue that Mm -hmm. there's something going on. So queer mystic is that, you know, a mystic is just somebody who has an unmediated relationship with divinity. So you're on your own. You don't call the rabbi or the imam or the priest or minister to help you have a relationship with God or whatever you see as that supreme intelligence. So I'm a mystic because every day I'm in a love affair with this force. I'm a chunk of creation. I'm a Mm co-creator, right? I mean, the church got most things wrong, but if there's any veracity to that we're created in the image of the creative force that makes us co-creative. And you can see We turn nothing into something all the time. Every one of us, even making dinner, right? (laughs) You turn sex into a baby. You turn fun into a child, right? It's just the nature of humans is to be creative. I have three CDs of original music because out of the experience of my life, I write poetry and write songs and then play the guitar and then turn it into a CD. And so people all over the country can play a kind of spiritual music that doesn't insult their soul. Mm. Right. And we do it usually for others. I think that as humans, we're nature and we do what nature does. And when you look at, I'm looking outside at trees right now. Well, so what do trees do in nature? Well, photosynthesis, they convert sunlight and air into carbohydrates and sugar and nutrients for the tree and the branches, the roots and the leaves and the soil around them. So what do humans do? Well, it's kind of like photosynthesis, only I call it infosynthesis. We receive intelligence. Mm. We receive bites of information all day long. Emily Dickinson says it like this. The only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. Mm. Okay, right. So we're like satellite dishes to mind at large, who's broadcasting to us 24 seven, you get the message when you take the call, that's called your spiritual practice. So when you sit in silence, when you're there in your satellite dish, receptive mode, then you get those bulletins from immortality, right? And then you transform them. You don't have chlorophyll, but you have an imagination. And you transform those invisible ingredients from information to inspiration for other people. And that's what it becomes. I feel like I get my marching orders in my prayer time, or in my meditation, whatever people call it. Right, matter. right. You yeah. get it. What's the next step? Might be the line of a poem, might be the title of a book, might be an idea for, oh, start this nonprofit, 
you know, it comes in any variety of ways, but it's definitely coming from creative source, the primary source of all creation. Right. Mind at large. Our reviewer mentioned the versatility of, of your book, how you've included songs and poetry and uh, mm. images and prose all wrapped up into your compelling life story is what she said. So, yeah, I love that. Yeah, I just made it into an audible book. I just finished recording it here. Oh, and nice. I, so I get to sing and I read my poems <laughs> and so people can experience it with a little bit more personality than when you sit with, I don't want to say a dry book, but right. when you sit with a dry book, you get whatever your imagination can bring to the table. Right. But when you hear an audible book and then you hear the music, you hear something from my CD, you hear right, me reading a poem, it's a little bit different because yeah. it has my vitality. Yeah, I, I love audiobooks. I read for a living, so what do I do for fun? I listen to audiobooks. <laughs> oh, well, but, see, there you have it. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. So who will benefit from reading Still on Fire? It's not just for the gay community, right? No, no, no. Here's who will benefit. Whoever opens to page one. Mm. Because here's the deal. It fully describes that you're on a spiritual journey and that you are actively creating your life and that your soul invites big experience and turbulence its way to give it something huge to reckon with as a spiritual force. And so our experience that we draw toward us happens for us, happens to us and happens through us. Mm -hmm. There's nobody that will not benefit from that very clear analysis of how our creativity works in the world. And as the book goes on, there's all this social context that helps us see. When I talk about being 12 years old, why am I having trouble because I'm an outsider or an outlier? Because my whole family is lying around the living room watching Father Knows Best, mm. Donna Reed, Leave It to Beaver. There's no room in there for outsiders. Right. You right. know, you got Eddie Haskell and you hate him. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> right? So what do you say to someone who not is necessarily a 12-year-old girl, but is stuck in fear? How do we get out of that? mode to execute change? Well, I think fear, people say it to me a lot. I Mostly my audience is women. So they'll say, I'm afraid. And I say, that's so bullshit. Mm. Because we all have superpowers. And my superpower is in my ears, in my hearing. I am like audio sentient. And that means when I hear people's voices, and if they're lying, I can tell it. <laughs> It doesn't have a soul resonance. So when I'm in consultation with people and they talk to me and they say something that's not soulfully true, then I know it. Hmm. And so I have come to discern that people who say I'm afraid don't really mean they're afraid. It's not fear, it's something else. And that we just keep probing to see what else could it be? Because mm. afraid of what? If you're afraid of what people are going to think about you, 
Really? Really? Yeah. You want that? I mean, when I go to Home Depot, I have been called sir so many times at Home Depot. <laughs> when I know before I go to Home Depot that I don't want to deal with that because it's always insulting. Right. Then I say, put earrings on or put lipstick on. And that is me weakening, right? Mm. It's me saying, oh, I want them to know I'm a woman, mm -hmm. right? But I am not afraid. You mm. make other decisions. What's up for you? The big question is not what you're afraid of. The big question is, what are you committed to? What kind of force are you in the world? What are they mm -hmm. going to say at your memorial? Are they going to Google you? What do your ancestors come to believe? What kind of trail are you leaving here? You got to figure out, well, if, if that's the kind of wimpy human being you want to be, go be that. It's <laughs> like when people say to me, I don't have time to meditate. Part of me wants to say, I don't have time to talk to you then. <laughs> right? Right. Because you're not up to me. You're not up to it. Yeah. If you say you don't have time to meditate, I usually say, because it hurts me in a way to hear that. Yeah. And I say back, oh, dear, that sounds to me like a young mother saying, well, I just don't have time to feed my baby. That's oh, the wow. kind of yeah. tragedy feels like, because the time that we give to that spiritual practice, even if it's 10 minutes a day, is the only time you're carving out for your love affair with your primary lover. Mm. When you fall in love with somebody, you do anything. I have driven through blizzards to spend an hour with someone I'm in love with. I have risked my life to be with the person I'm in love with. That's the power of love. Mm -hmm. So if you say, Oh, I'm too, it's raining out. I adore you. I'm totally in love with you, but I'm too afraid of the rain to meet you at Starbucks, or, <laughs> you know, or to have you come and get in my bed with me. It's just baloney. Yeah. You know, if you really want a love affair, you have a love affair. That's true. And that's what I have with my dancing partner. That's how come I'm being interviewed. Right? Because I want to be a force in the world. Right. I want to have people asking me questions. And so this is how I organize my life. I do things in a big way. Somebody notices, wow, we ought to talk to her. Yeah. And then, you know, it's like nature wants to keep populating, right? Nature is all about sex and propagation. Right? How do things come together to keep propagating? There's this guy who wrote a book called Botany of Desire. And he talks about, hmm. he says, people need these three things. He named them all, and these in every chapter was about tulips evolved to get more beautiful, beautiful, more and more beautiful, because then they would be propagated around the world. And potatoes, and then marijuana, and then apples because of the sweetness got propagated all around the world. Marijuana, because people like to get out of their senses every once in a while, yeah. whatever potatoes was, I don't remember that. But it's like, we figure out how to propagate ourselves. And for an artist, you, I do it with books, with music, with poetry, 
what else? I don't paint, but I'm a photographer. Yeah. Right? I'm not a dancer, God forbid. But <laughs> I do it in every way I can do it. And the question is, what are you drawing attention to? And if you're a conscious evolutionary creator, you will know right away what you're drawing attention to. You're, well, I'm going to speak for you. You're drawing attention to great books that have the power to inspire and influence minds who make a difference in the world. Mm. And that's your job. And you've created your income from it. Mm -hmm. Your whole life is your creative gesture. So you and your partner have figured out a brilliant way to be of service and use and to be cultural activists at this time in a culture that's suffering for lack of imagination. Yeah. Oh, so you and me together, we, we're both doing it every day. You wake up and you create a better world for people. Wow. I'm inspired. I, hope so. <laughs> I didn't know inspired. I did all that. <laughs> yeah, you do. This is an enlightened conversation. Yeah. It's inspiring. And you're making it possible for people around the world mm. to hear it. It could change their life. They could order this book or not. They might have just had their life changed because of what you and I just said. Right. But if not, they'll order the book or they'll get something from you. They'll go to your website and that book will change their life. We know books that have changed my I've been changed by a Doris Lessing novel. You know, Rachel Carson changed lives. Ursula Le Guin changed my life, right? Yeah. So wow. that's what we do. We just show up and live bigly. Just show up. I'm going to say bigly because we know who said bigly. <laughs> Hugely. <laughs> oh, you're funny. Oh, my goodness. So still on fire. It's been out for, what, about six months now? I don't know, since October. Yeah, yeah, almost six months. So what kind of feedback have you had on it? Well, I get tons of feedback all the time because my, well, I have a newsletter list of 9,000 people. Oh, wow. People should sign up because it's a great newsletter. Go to janetjanphillips.com, sign up. So anyway, people all know everything about me and my life from my monthly newsletter and so they email me directly and say, oh, my God, it's the greatest thing since Velcro. Oh, my God, I love this. Oh, page 88, my favorite. Oh, thank you so much. And I keep saying, well, please post that on Amazon.com. Exactly. Right? Because all that affirmation, I mean, it doesn't make me cry for sure, but it's like it could be more useful. Right. It's more global. Amazon, so, folks, Barnes & Noble, wherever. But, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Goodreads, whatever, you know, wherever people, yeah, you know, interact with the reading community. Yeah. Suggest it to Reese's books or tell Oprah, oh, you got to read this book. You know, be a force for good for me. Do what you can to spread the word. That's what I think. Because when you come upon something really good, like I spread the word about something on Sunday that was a total mistake because somebody sent me a videotape of Zelensky and his wife singing this love song to each other. Oh, no. And I posted it on Facebook. And But Snopes had, had said, it's not real. It's two other people that look like them. Oh, and, no. And so people on my Facebook page said, hey, that, you're posting something that's not real. Snopes, blah -de blah But <laughs> I just said, oh, whoops, sorry, but wasn't it a beautiful video? <laughs> you know, there's some risks involved with but i can't be hurt i have no fear yeah i'm fearful of absolutely nothing hmm. i almost lost my life i've had a gun at my head i've been raped i've been violated i've been beat up 
bad things have happened. I don't know what worse could happen, but I just am fearless. Wow. And so I just try, I, I try to walk around with a megaphone. Yeah, that's wonderful. So what are you working on now? Do you have plans for another book in the future? I do have plans for another one. It's going to be a small one, and it's called Stop Seeking, Start Finding. Hmm. Because, you know, I don't call myself a seeker. I call myself a finder, right? Because I found it. Why would you be 60 years old still seeking? Mm. So it's just the secret recipe for how do you make that shift from seeker to finder. Oh, wow. Because once you do, then everything opens up. Mm. There's nothing but goodness. I mean, I know Ukrainian wars going on. I, I'm no idiot. And I watch the news to right. totally probably too much. But I'm looking at it from a higher vantage point. But John Updike says, chaos is just a local view of things working out in general. Mm. Right? Chaos. A local view of things working out in general. From the point of view of mind at large or supreme intelligence, there's no opinions from that perspective. There's no duality. It's a non-dual state of awareness that everything is evolving mm-hmm. perfectly. As right? it was meant so to. there's no God out there saying, oh, those stupid humans, look what they're doing. There's not that going on. There's just creation continuing to expand. And Teilhard de Chardin is a great Jesuit mystic paleontologist. He died in the 50s. But he said... Because people were questioning, why is there so much evil? And he said, evil is just the statistical necessity of disorder. He kind of had a scientific approach to it. Evil, ah, don't worry about it. It's just the statistical necessity of disorder in an organism that's evolving itself to higher states of complexity. Hmm. Wow. And that's pretty, it's pithy, right? Yeah. It's pithy and heady and you got to go, what? (laughs) You know, but I have been working with Teilhard for so long that I just feel like I'm a translator to him. It's like I'm when I'm sitting next to Jean Houston on some podium or something and she answers a question to the audience, I go like, okay, let me translate that for you. Because sometimes wise people speak in language that's not readily accessible. And I try and speak as if everybody is 10 years old. Mm. Because it's that simple. Mm -hmm. We make it hard. You make it hard. Make it hard. Then people don't understand what you're saying. That's kind of cruel. Mm. Yeah. Well, Jan, is there anything else you wanted to add today? Well, I just hope that anybody who hears it takes it seriously that we talked today about the unity of humanity and divinity Mm. and that that's a process. It's an ongoing process that human beings are vessels of sacred energy. And so our only job on earth is to communicate the sacred in the ways the sacred likes to be shared, which is joyful, full of light, full of grace and love and mercy. And so I would just say and pray that everybody listening realizes they're a vessel for the transmission 
of joy and light and kindness and mercy in this world. And if you figure out how to do that, an abundance of wealth and good things will come your way. That's just how it works. Mm. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for talking to me today. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. To learn more about Jan and her work, visit her website at janphillips.com. And be sure to check out our other interviews at InsideScoopLive.com.